Who is that? Jazz. Bastard. <laughs> All right. Well, if you're ready, welcome to Jazz Bastard Podcast 230. I'm Pat. I'm Mike. And we have a special guest today. Could you introduce yourself, special guest? Uh, my name is Dave Mullen, New York City-based saxophonist. And uh, you've got a new project coming out called Solus, right? Is that just out now? When, when, did, it, when did it drop? Uh, it actually came out in July. And okay, it's sort of okay. taking legs uh, of its own. It keeps, you know, just, uh, t- just today um, um, it was covered in an Italian magazine, you know, a national magazine over there. So it's just... Stuff keeps happening with it and developing, so it's kind of exciting, you know. Different ways that things are happening, so it's pretty cool. Awesome. So we wanted to talk to you a little bit about that uh, album in a minute. Maybe we could start with just uh, having you introduce yourselves a bit to our listeners and talk a little bit about your career and some of the people you've played with and, and how things are going now. Sure. Um, again, um, I'm originally from Boston, graduated from Berkeley College of Music back in the day, uh, moved to New York um, in 1991, and immediately kind of just started getting work. You know, I've worked with uh, everybody from the Roy Ayers, the P-Funk, to currently Gloria Gaynor. You know, just a lot of different things, you know, uh, many different projects of my own. I uh, released another album prior to this one um, that featured, you know, Nile Rodgers, um, you know, a, a gospel choir, a number of, you know, people like Mark Egan, notable bass player, a whole lot of other wonderful cats. And then, you know, just kind of just been just been grinding, you know, just you know, doing the New York City thing. And this is obviously so much work here and, um, you know, of all kinds. And I love all music. So it's it's actually the right place for me. So um, then, you know, of course, the album, uh, I started recording the album uh, four years ago and um, I wanted to do um, an album that was not just covering great songs by Duke Ellington or John Coltrane, but I wanted to write in that style so i my so the whole album is, is basically dedications to coltrane and and actually duke ellington is the only cover i actually did do i did my own ross on roland kirk uh, twist on satin doll There's also dedications to uh, McCoy Tyner, Michael Brecker, you know, and, and a number of other people as well. So, again, I wanted to do a, a, an album that is dedicated to these people without just literally playing their music, if that makes sense. So, And then I recorded it, and then the next day, let's take the conversation down, but my brother basically goes into a coma and dies, you know, essentially. Wow, so, geez. so, yeah, so that's kind of where it ties into the, the, the title of the album, Solace, because I literally had to step away from the album 
for about a year and a half because the two um, became linked. He recorded mm. it. The next day he dies. So they kind of became joined. I'm mean, I had to, you know, sort of just create some separation before I revisited it. And when I finally did, um, that's where that solace, that feeling of, wow, this is something here. Um, even though it originally started out ded- uh, as a dedication to all these well-known luminaries, Coltrane, etc., um, it also became a dedication to his memory. And then finally, you know, we got it done. We got it mixed. The gentleman that mixed it, uh, a guy named Jeff Jones, he's won a Grammy with uh, Dr. John and Wynton Marcellus and does a lot of things at Jazz at Lincoln Center. Um, and just, you know, on, on every level of the project, um, this is mastered. So, of course, the musicians themselves, you know, John Coward, uh, piano player, plays with Brian Blade, if you're familiar with him. Um, sure, he's yeah. Worked with yeah, Cassandra Wilson and many others. Um, the bass player, uh, Hans Glavishnig, has worked with uh, Chick Corea and, um, and many others as well. The drummer, E.J. Strickland, has worked with Robbie Coltrane and, 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 of course, and a bevy of others as well. The trumpet player, Feely, um, plays with Tico uh, O'Farrell, his son's Arturo O'Farrell now. So, excuse me, I'm wrong. Arturo and Chico. So, um, yeah, it's just, it's just masters on every level. So, you know, I'm, I'm just blessed to have everybody involved. And, and, uh, then of course, you know, I put it out on my own record label and, and, uh, we've been on the, on the jazz week charts for now since the second week, third, excuse me, the third week in July. So it's really kind of taking on a, a life of its own you know, everywhere from France to, to, to South America to it's gotten played on the BBC twice. Yeah, it's just all over the place. All, of course, domestically, every radio station around. So, you know, every jazz station. Yeah, but it's, I've been blessed so far. So, it's been a good run. Anything, Mike? You want to? Oh no, I was just listening, and uh, all of that, uh, all of that's fascinating. I did not know the the background, and sorry, of course, to hear about um, the backstory. I mean, you know, sorry for your loss, but I guess that that's something that must be really um that must feel really good that the album has gotten some traction out you know and that must feel very satisfying at some level i suppose oh absolutely i mean 100 percent. you know and you know of course you know my brother's memory is in many ways um part of the driving force you know to really you know to really justify his memory right try to really you know bring it to light and uh, that sort of thing. So um, I think in that way, you know, it's like I said, you know, whenever you release an album, and I'm sure you guys can relate in projects you've done, they start to take on a life of their own, even beyond what you originally uh, had hoped for. You know, so it's kind of exciting to see. I'm sure some of your podcasts would probably undoubtedly have, have done that, I, I would bet, and, and other things you've been doing. Yeah, actually, I, I checked out one of your uh, other ones a couple of weeks ago, and it's, yeah, you guys do great work. So, you know, it's, yeah, but thank you for that.
So what is the um, say a little more about uh, the Roland Kirk connection? Uh, you know, we are um, I think maybe uh, I mean, and Pat's known about Roland Kirk for a long time, but I might be a little more all in on him. Uh, sure. Having picked having picked up the Mercury recordings ages ago, and oh, yeah. you know, big big fan of the Inflated Tear and Volunteered Slavery and blah blah blah. I mean, so you know, I have, and also some of the work he recorded with Joel Dorn right. later. Uh, just he's a force of nature. Um, so he's not though someone who you often hear people name check today, and mm-hmm. and I just. There might be a little—I uh, don't know. I, I wonder if there's a little pushback because of the the idea that oh well, you know, he's he does the overblowing with multiple horns. He's got all the—he's got the nose flute or the nose whistle, blah blah blah. And that you know, some people might feel—I don't know if other—I don't know how many people feel this way, but I imagine some people might feel he's more of a novelty act than a than a you know a kind of true giant. I, I disagree with that, of course, and I suspect you do too. But how did you? How does how does one sort of stumble on Roland Kirk and go, hey, this is a, a lodestar for me? Well, uh, the, well, the first time I ever heard him, you know, I'm a huge Mingus fan as well. And, oh, cool. And, uh, and and my my first introduction to him I was probably late '80s, and it was that uh, album, Oh Yeah. Mm-hmm. And of course, he's playing all over that album, and I'm, and I'm listening to him. I'm like, wait a second, what is going on here? He's, <laughs> he was doing the two horns. I'm like, that's either two guys that are like really in sync, or there's something else going on. And then, of course, yeah, you know, it didn't take long to, you know, to hear that that he was he was you know playing the multiple horns. And I, of course, had heard of him, but I had never really, really, really heard him and the energy and the excitement and it's just his constant pushing of boundaries, constant. And and he has, you know, he of course, a very, very interesting life. Um, and then, of course, you know, uh, in late 90s, as fate would have it, um, I was buying a horn off uh, of this, this other musician and uh, you know, really with the intention of flipping it. I wasn't going to keep it. And then he said, look, you know, I have this neck uh, on the horn, um, which uh, belonged to Rassan. He bought it from uh, Rassan's widow, uh, Dorthon Kirk. Um, who's also one of the proprietors of uh, WBGO here in in, uh, in New Jersey, which of course is the local, the biggest local uh, jazz station. And she was selling a bunch of his stuff out on the street on Canal Street in you know downtown Manhattan. Oh, wow, and okay. he he bought it. He bought it. Uh, and then he he said, "Look, you're buying this horn. I'll throw this in part of the deal." I said, "Oh, thank you. Great. You know." And of course, uh, once I tried it, it's just literally got magic in it. It's a complete game changer. <laughs> it's gonna be, you know, it, it actually was substantiated by you know a lot of local guys had actually worked on his horns. You know, Rassan was a constant, constantly experimenting with things. And in, in, in sort of to dial back too, you know, if Rassan only played flute, you would know him. Mm. Oh yeah. I mean, just on his flute playing alone. Forget about anything else. Yes. Forget about the multi horn yes. playing. You know, all that stuff. Because he he personally gave a career to Ian Anderson of Jethro Tull, the whole <laughs> right? 
Yeah, pretty much. You know, <laughs> yeah, I mean, exactly. It's you know, hundred percent. So, and you know, Ian Anderson was is no is he was a huge Rossad fan. Um, then t- talk about just his tenor playing or his alto playing or whatever, uh, his stretch playing. I mean, you 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 would know him just for that. And then of course he does the multi horn thing. Um, did you guys ever see the movie uh, the the Three Sided Dream? Uh, I have the 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 Joel Dorn uh, the album that goes with that, but I, I've never oh, seen well, the film. Well, oh, you, you have to see it tonight. It's on Prime. <laughs> Three Sided Dream. It's phenomenal. It's absolutely. Do you want to talk about something that's going to inspire you for weeks and weeks? I've literally probably seen it. I don't know, ten to fifteen times. I keep going back to it. Keep going back to it. Keep. And it, it explains a lot of these things. You know, is uh, of course it interviews his uh, his wife uh, Dorthon, Steve Teray, the trombone player that actually worked with him quite a bit. Just a number of other people. So he, for me, he's just a constant source of inspiration uh, because he again he, he he thought outside the box. You know, I mean, one thing that I'm not really a big fan of myself is this, you know, rope playing, just playing. OK, I'm playing this lick. I'm playing that. You know, you should always try to at least attempt. We, of course, we would fail half the time, but at least attempt to do something innovative or new or whatever. So, again, he's always been a, a constant source of inspiration for me and will will be again. I might watch the movie again tonight. Who knows? So, <laughs> you know, definitely, please. And let me know what you think of it. It's, it's going to blow you away. Well, Mike has Sun, been recommending some Sun Ra Sun, pictures, but I've not been brave enough to watch them yet. I'll have to knuckle down. And <laughs> You know, I, I will say that if nothing else, he saved my least favorite Duke Ellington song. Because I got to admit, I mean, I love Duke Ellington. I've got over 100 of his recordings. I love that man. But Satin Doll is not at the top of my list of favorite Ellington. And <laughs> playing it Rashawn style, I'm like, man, that I like this song now right now. You know, I just... That yeah. really, that really helped that tune because it can be dire oh. in the wrong hands. I will tell you, and it oh, that really, yeah. that really helped it. You know, that just it just gave it that edge of I don't know. Just that's a tune that needs a little kick in the pants, and that really did it. it was, sure. That was that was a great touch. And I, I sure. just did you develop with did the neck help you develop this ability to play two horns at once, or I just can't. I mean, can't even comprehend how you do that. Yeah, I mean, doing it um, forehand. You know, somewhat. So I pretty much started probably, I don't know, 95, maybe experimenting with it. I obtained the neck probably in 98. And then it just kind of just, you know, took on another life of its own. You know, the, as the old saying goes, you don't find your horn, your horn finds you kind of thing. And, and I really believe that uh, or your instrument, whatever it may be. And I, that really kind of just, again, took it, you know, to, to another place. Um, I don't even use the original neck. Um, on the horn anymore, which is you know, worth a good bit of money, I might add. You know, being a Mark VI from 1957 and all that, but but yeah, it's just, it's a complete game changer. So then, yeah, I mean, then I started developing, um, you know, different you know technique. Again, I didn't invent this stuff. I did not invent this stuff. But then again, you know, if a piano player can play two notes, why can't I? If a guitar player can <laughs> it's play only two fair. notes, uh, why can't I? <laughs> right? I mean, it's really that's that's right. really how I really reduce it, you know, to aside from the gimmickry. And, and by the way, in that movie, it talks about his sensitivity because he was criticized for being some somewhat gimmickry and, and being a sideshow and all that sort of thing.
in the course of the history of this, you know, the multi-horn playing, he even he didn't invent it. It was that's an old uh, vaudeville, right? Yeah, whatnot. It goes way back. So, but of course, he took it to another level and in, in, in voice-led harmonies and all this wonderful stuff. But he was criticized in his own life, um, which hurt him deeply, because you know the premise of the movie is that a lot of these things, you know playing the multiple multiple horns and all this stuff came to him in dreams uh, i wanted to i wanted to ask you more about the the horns uh the, the the neck and stuff so i mean if you listen to the podcast and you'll hear us talk sometime and charles mcpherson is a friend of the podcast and and he's been on and and he right. he played it he played at carnegie hall with mingus on a he and roland kirk were guests at that date um he played with mingus quite a bit and and um he was in Mingus's workshop band for seven or eight years, nine years. So, you know, um, uh, I was talking to him about horns recently and, and he said something interesting and I wondered, you know, if, if you would could corroborate or back this up. I, we, we were talking about um, horns and metal and blah, blah, blah. And uh, he, he was essentially saying the old horns are, are way better that there's something about uh, his horn goes way back. And, right. um, you know, there's something. Uh, his feeling is something's been lost in in the composition of new horns, and 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 you know, I mean, they sound. I mean, you can play them; they sound great. But you know, there's something special about the the older stuff. And when you said that about, you know, Roland Kirk's neck, I thought, wow, that's kind of interesting. You know, do do you have you found that to be the case? We don't often talk, uh, you know, hardware talk here, but I'm kind of curious right. now that you mentioned it. I do want to see the saxophone flipper show on HGTV. I mean, screw this house's shit. <laughs> I want to see saxophone flippers. That sounds awesome to me. You know, you get it, you restore it, you go out there. I don't know. It's fascinating. And, and I mean, yeah. Do I think all the horns are better? I do. I mean, not always, but you know, if, you know, particularly if you talk about Selmer's, you know, my horn again is from 1957. It's made in Paris, and and you know, it was all it was rolled. It wasn't you know, it wasn't machined um, like they are today. I mean, you know, a lot of that artistry. And know-how was is some of it has been lost because again they used to you know the, the the bells for example they would ping it to get the right sound out of it now of course it's you know a micrometer is measuring the metal to make sure it's the right you know it's a different thing right so um, these horns were all men were, were literally built by hand in in, in shaved down the metal was shaved and rolled and etc cetera, etc cetera. so. Um, they were literally handmade instruments, literally. Um, whereas nowadays, pretty much every horn is made in, you know, in the Far East, whether in China or wherever. Um, obviously, for costs and other things, uh, a lot of times, you know, these, these companies will just have blanks made, and then they'll come back to their, you know, back to the states or wherever, and then they'll modify them to make them more their own. But they're really the the state the the blanks themselves are very similar to a lot of the major horns. Right, whereas that was not the case, you know, in 1957, certainly. And and actually, the Rasan neck that I use is uh, is called the Super Balance Action, which predates the Mark VI. So the neck is actually probably from the 40s, and the horn the, the horn itself is from 1957. So yeah, I <laughs> I like the old stuff, no question about that. Yeah, that's just something that uh, the Mark VI is kind of legendary among saxophone players. Now, I, as a kid, I ran across one in my little hometown they were trying to get rid of, and I've had it. And it turns out you also need talent to make them sound good. But, you know, it, <laughs> it's not just the horn, but but it is. It's That's kind of the, 
I feel like still the legendary model, right? Everybody talks about Mark Sixes, right? They're the ones that just everybody still. Um, um, you still have that horn? Yeah. Well, my theory is when I die, somebody talented's going to get it, so I don't feel guilty. I, I still play, but <laughs> but not well. So I'm like, well, next generation will be fine. I just kind of. Uh- you know, but yeah, it, it's, I mean, it's, it's a fine horn. It, I, I don't know that it's one of the better runs of that series, but mm-hmm. it's still, it's still a lot better than I am. But, but yeah, <laughs> anyway, if you're not a horn player, that's kind of the still, you know, and, and obviously great musicians have played other, other makes. It's just, that's still kind of a well-known, well-known type. No, absolutely. I mean, there's other, there's other great ones too. I mean, there's old cons that were great from that period as well. And, you know, this, yeah, like you said, Mark Six is, is somewhat legendary, but, um, yeah, there's many others. Um, but ergonomically, they usually weren't, uh, is, uh, up to par. That's what sort of separated the Mark Six, you know, from, say, the con, t- uh, 10M, for example. It's great sound, but ergonomically, it's this, it's awkward and, yeah, you know, the keys aren't, yeah, they're harder to just kind of, Play smoothly. So how many horns do you, I mean, do you have a number of them or? I do. I have, yeah, tons and tons and tons of horns. You know, I also have, you know, I mean, pretty much every kind of instrument you can imagine, you know. I'm in my basement here, which is also doubles as a, a recording studio and a rehearsal studio and a bar as well. <laughs> Important. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. So yeah, I have you know obviously the Barry, the, the, the few, uh, two tenors, alto, soprano, flute, clarinet, you know, you name it. I probably have it in this house. You the know. whole woodwind family's living down there. Yeah. Okay. Oh, everything, various penny whistles, and you know, I mean, just all kinds of ethnic flutes, basses, uh, a pair of bagpipes, which are like <laughs> kind of, I like a dying cat because they're not really uh, the best. You know, kind, but but yeah. So yeah, it's pretty much it's a couple pianos in the house as well. So so do you, you have know. the bagpipes because of some Irish ancestry, or is it just as a like a home defense device? If somebody breaks in, you can attack them yeah, with it. What tear them out exactly? Yes, I am. Uh, it's funny, you know. Recently, I did that ancestry.com, and it came back 99% Irish. So wow, yes. okay, yeah. Wow. I found, yeah. <laughs> That's thorough. 99% anything, but I am so. Well, we're figuring with kind of green, which is it's it's one of the it's great, but it's also funny, right? You know, the cover that I feel like is a Coltrane homage, but Coltrane homages are so often just very serious and intense and spiritual, and this has got that aspect, but it throws in kind of an Irish jig sound to it, and it just that's because you get you get us going, you got us going along, thinking we're going to do another you know very straight face Coltrane tribute, and then you know kind of clicks into that that rhythm, and it's like oh wait a minute, this is different. So I wonder if that was yeah. Thank you. 
I mean, again, I don't know anybody else that has incorporated, you know, an Irish jig with sort of a Coltrane-type rhythm set, you know. So, you know, this was something that I wanted to fuse my own lineage. Not that I grew up with Irish music, per se, um, but I did want to try to fuse the two. And, you know, actually, it's, it's one of my favorite tracks on the album because it's just, you know, it is so different and it, it, it is uh, you know, somewhat unexpected. So, you know, and actually, that, that track, actually, they played in Belfast. So it was kind of kind cool. of funny. Yeah, that's that's great, and that that really, I mean, that mix works better than you think it would if you read. You know, we're gonna do this, mix this with this. It's like, okay, that doesn't sound good on paper, but it it turns out they map together pretty well. I you know wouldn't yeah. have guessed that, but thank you. I was, uh, I was hoping it would. So <laughs> <laughs> well, fair you know, so is the uh, is the tune for Michael? I'm, I'm is that your brother then? No, that's uh, from Michael Brecker. Oh, okay. Yeah, right. you know, again, you know, I wrote, you know, like I said, you know, um, really the whole album is really, you know, I could have almost called it dedication. Right. Yeah, and that was, I, I remember I started writing it, um, you know, right after Michael passed, you know, way back in mm-hmm. what, 2007, 2008, yeah. whatever it was. And then, you know, it's just one of those things that sat on your hard drive and, you know, kind of got busy doing other things and whatever. You know, I revisited it five years ago. You know, right before we started recording it, and I was like, wow, this is something. So, because obviously he was always a huge influence on me, and, you know, I got to meet him, and he's just a beautiful, gentle soul, but obviously his talent is good God, you know. Yeah. I mean, wow. it's just, it's still, talk about a game changer, is an, is an understatement. You know, Pat Metheny <laughs> had, had a quote saying, one of the, one of the uh, least formidable tasks of being a jazz musician is to have to take a solo after Michael Brecker. So, <laughs> <laughs> did, did you know? Did you know Brecker personally? I, I can't say. I met him a few times, but that's right. you know, I, I knew him. Um, but he was a very, very approachable guy. I mean, humble. Most, you know, you know, how did I sound? Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? <laughs> but, but that, that, that openness is. I mean, that's that's the beauty of who he was. He was just constantly learning and growing and, and and just staying humble. I mean, he could, I mean, let's be honest, so many people that could go, you know, uh, you know, neck and neck with him. But he just, I mean, just, but he, again, that openness and humility, humility was uh, really what kept him open to keep learning and getting better. His last album, Pilgrimage, when he yeah. was, you know, stage four and this and that. And I mean, it's, it's absolutely one of the most incredible albums period and and the fact that he was as sick as he was and to play at that level and he hadn't been able to play for a while he had to literally take a you know a couple months off and slowly got back into it building up his strength and then he puts out that masterpiece And and I remember the first time I heard it, and subsequently every other time, I don't hear any anything less than vintage Brecker. Mm. But this isn't like oh, this is Michael when he was sick, and it was his you know last. No, this was Michael at the top of his game. Period. <laughs> 
which is another talk about inspiration. I mean, right. my God, Pat, did we cover that? I can't remember. I know we've done some Brecker and Brecker I, Brothers. Did we do that? I I have to look it up. You know, after nine years, we're kind of <laughs> a little fuzzy on the details, but. but I feel like, I, I feel like we did and, and had and if we didn't, we, we probably should. But I thought we did anyway. Just curious. Uh, right. Um, can you say a little bit about um, I've, this is something I've always been curious about. So I, you know, when you play multiple horns, I've always been kind of blown away by just I assume the amount of air you have to put through the horns is ridiculous. Is that is that true? I mean, is it like something you is it like a feat of strength you kind of have to build up to being able to do that because you know Roland Kirk would sometimes play three you know you, you, there's oh, pictures of him with three horns in his mouth you know which yeah. is nuts so what was that like I mean I mean it's um how do I say this he has to be in shape to do it I mean it's like mm-hmm. uh, you know I don't really stop doing it so I don't really know what it's like to get back into it you know but right. I imagine some reason, you know, if I had to give it up for two months or three months, I would literally have to go back, like like going to the gym. You know, mm-hmm. it's physically, you know, able to do it. I mean, years and years and years ago, I used to smoke, and you know, I would have told you it never affected my playing, but I'm sure it did back then. But you know, since then, of course, you've developed you know this technique even further and taking it to another you know level. And you know, and I tr- I think I'm I'm doing some things that. Um, I've stretched the octave even maybe a little bit even before uh, beyond what Rasan was doing. He was most I mean, his stuff is good God incredible, but I'm trying to add another octave above that. So oh geez, yeah, um, with multiple horns. <laughs> yeah, I can't yeah, imagine. So, yeah. yeah, so you know I've been able to do that, but again, it does you know, it does beat up your chops. There's no question about it. I mean, if I'm doing it for a couple hours uh, at a gig, I mean the next day you feel it. There's no question about it. So yeah, you do have to physically be in shape for it. There's no question, you know, about that. So yes, yeah, again, you know, it's almost like being an athlete. You know, you right. can't show, you know, spring training out of shape, right? You know, you have to do your prep work. You have to you know, visit it, you know, at least you know once or twice a week. Otherwise, you start to lose these muscles because doing that, you're you're literally creating two embouchures. Right. Right. Does that so, mess with your Does that mess with your playing? You know, when you go back to one horn, uh, or is this something you just have to kind of cope with you know um i think i think originally it did mm-hmm. um, i would say yeah it might you know especially if you're you know it's you know if you start getting tired from doing it then you go back to your regular horn um especially soprano because it's such a narrow embouchure mm-hmm. um, i would say that definitely affected but again i've kind of you know gotten beyond that now simply just by doing it for so long so but it's yeah it takes it takes a while to do there's no question about it i mean I miss all the guys that do it, you know, around. So um, I'm certainly not alone in this in this endeavor. Um, but it's still fairly that, unusual. I mean, yeah. I you know, we listen to a lot of jazz records, and rarely do you get some of the. It's not unknown, but it, it's fairly unusual. Uh, it's a challenge, and a lot of people don't. You will double or triple, but they don't play the two horns simultaneously. You know, that's sure. Sure. I, I was going to ask one more dumb question about that, um, uh, and it's—I um, agree with you. It's not the most interesting thing about Roland Kirk. Um, I, I adore his flute playing, um, and and I especially like him whenever he's playing soul tinged stuff. Um, I, I always think those are really strong songs for him. But uh, and also he's just great on everything with Mingus. He's just he, Mingus said he was one of the few guys who really got him. He loved hiring him to play for him but um the fingerings uh, that's got to be a trick too 
right? I mean, not so. I don't. I I don't. Unlike yeah, that, I don't play a horn. Yeah, comparing it to like you know piano, right? You know the piano right here. So it's like you know you're doing two separate things with like you know. two separate things with your hands right mm-hmm. and you know people you know see piano players do that all the time and they think wow he's doing no, it's no different right one mm-hmm. hand moving, your voice leading you're doing something else right it's kind of right yeah independently so it's you know well the piano is designed uh, for for <laughs> i mean in other words you're playing two instruments both of which assume you've got both hands on them so it is a it's a little trickier in that you know I mean, they're they're keyed for a way to that makes sense right you know they're they're both uh, assuming they've got both your hands attention but do you have to right. modify them or is it just literally just embouchure and throat to get the notes you want yeah there's a lot of stuff i mean you have to you you do have to open up your throat and almost like the feeling of yawning you know i mean when i play my you know my i've been told my neck expands quite a bit so <laughs> uh you know, so so yeah, I mean, you, you definitely have to. You, if you open this up and then you focus it here, it can create some really. And plus, the way the two horns combine, mm-hmm. you know, the, the harmonics kind of create something new. You know, right. I, could, I could lay down a soprano track and then lay down the exact same or, or something different on tenor. Combine them, they wouldn't sound the same. But when you're playing them together, there's something about the way the waves collide with each other. Yeah. Uh, create something in fact it's actually very tricky to mic it properly hmm. you can't get you can't get mic it too close because then you get some other overtones and so it's it's almost you have to do about like a uh, like a like an over, almost like an overhead uh, drum mics hmm. the best way to do yeah. it so we in the actual sound of the instrument itself as opposed to two separate instruments right right they can be combined It really does become really does become one instrument, you know, on its own. Really. So I have a much less technical question, but it is it is a feat. It's, it amazes me that this album. It sounds to me like this album drew on stuff you've been working on for many years. Maybe some newer songs, some from from the drawer that have been around. You developed. Mm-hmm. You kept it to 51 minutes, which I think is a glorious thing. How did you know when the album was through? Because sometimes we'll get records that run 75 minutes. Oh, and right. I'm through with them before they're through. And so how right. did you, did you have a big stack that you narrowed down and said, we're just going to focus on these seven tunes? Cause it's, it's a really well paced album. You know, we're near the beginning of it, the middle of it, the end. There's a story it's right. telling. It's, it's an experience that runs 51 minutes and mm-hmm. increase maybe cause I'm old. I mean, that's the way I listen to music most of the time. I don't listen to like a playlist or Spotify. And boy, that's a talent. I mean, cause a lot of records have a lot of great stuff on them, but they don't sit that way they don't they don't coalesce into something bigger how did you right. know i mean did you have a did you have to winnow things out or how did you figure out what was going um, on here? actually i mean really it was just you know I, I would love to make up a whole story and say that i it was a completely organic process you know i did experiment with some tempos and in various things um but really the way you know we rehearsed it you know the way it was recorded just went down 
just everything felt completely natural. You know, as you see, you know, some songs, you know, I could have, I could have extended, I could have done another, you know, whatever. But also, you know, for, you know, I also had the, uh, because I did self-produce it as well. You know, you do, you know, to get your, your stuff played on the radio, which obviously it has been played extensively now. So, um, you do have to kind of keep it in the ballpark, right? Right. Yeah. Okay. You know, unless, unless it's Coltrane live in Paris or something, <laughs> you know, you're going to sit and listen to a, you know, 20 minute version of my favorite things that you want to do. Right. So you do have to kind of keep it, you know, uh, in the six to seven minute range, I think for the most part, you know, for jazz, obviously, if you're talking about a pop song, you're looking at three and a half minutes, right? But so that was, you know, I did have that in uh, in the back of my mind, you know. So obviously, for playability and for for radio promoters and programmers to pick it up, but I can't, you know, the rest of it just kind of happened organically. Just it fell into place. Things felt right. I mean, I did think a lot about the. The uh, program of the of the order of the, the order, uh, yeah. You know, whereas you know, you want to have something that really the opening track kind of really just hits you hard, right? Then uh, next track kind of goes in almost like an Eddie Harris kind of groove thing. Okay, okay, settle it down, right? Third track is the ballad, so it kind of goes the start up here, kind of go, takes it down, and then then yeah. goes back up with that uh, the tune. Uh, main trunk which is you know obviously reversal letters train monk right you mm-hmm. know the sections, you know, the, you know, the monk part, right, right, so that's the monkish part, and then the bridge, you know, if you're, you know, I'm sure you're familiar with the Coltrane changes, right, so, right, and then after that, then it spins off into, you know, you know, like Rassan, of course, and well, Satin Doll, which is, again, the only cover on the album, um, and that song is also partially dedicated to a uh, a dear friend of mine, a guy by the name of Gary Keys, who was a uh, jazz, you know, filmmaker, promoter. He was very, uh, very good uh, friends with Duke. Um, he traveled around with his band in the early 60s. He actually made a movie with Duke Ellington, and he also made another one about Duke Ellington. Oh, okay. and both of those, yeah, and both of those movies are an archive at the Museum of Modern Art here in New York. Um, and he's a dear friend of mine. He's have these great parties uh, for the Upper East Side of Manhattan. And, and, you know, one of the few times I was starstruck in New York, I, I saw Max Roach walking around. So, you know, those are people he worked with and knew and loved and, and whatnot. So that was uh, also, you know, partially a dedication to, to his memory. You know, Gary Keyes, check him out. He's okay. got some uh, great tons what's, of... What's the, what's the film he made with uh, Ellington? One was... He made a few of them. Oh God, I wish I knew the. Uh, I can remember the names. Are these short well, films? Because I've I've seen about three or four shorts with Ellington already. Um, they're not that short. Mm, okay. You know, we played. We we did a gig uh, when he when they were actually entering the archives, which is a pretty distinguished thing to yeah you know, for the for the moment to uh, to accept you know your work 
you know, into their permanent archives. So we did a gig there and they, and they had a screening. I mean, it doesn't, I don't want to say it was that short. Uh, certainly over an hour, I would think. Yeah, Google says he did the Mexican suite. Yes. And I, yeah. I, that's one I haven't heard. I got to look that up because I, I loved Ellington Suites, but I, I've never heard of that one. And then Memories of Duke. Right. Um, so, yeah, okay. All right. Yeah. So, what I'm thinking of are yeah. uh, these shorter things he recorded earlier, these films he did earlier, like um, Black and Tan, right. a, bundle, a Bundle of Blues, Symphony yep. in Black. Um, mm-hmm. That stuff, those are sort of shorter, I think the longest of them is Symphony in Black, and that tops out at like 10 minutes. So these are not those. That's what I was curious about. Okay. Yeah. They're they're great. I mean, and it's really just, you know, what I I really enjoyed about them. In fact, I, you know, quite honestly, I I should revisit them myself. It's been, well, he's been gone for a couple of years. It's probably been 10 years since I've seen them myself. Is, um, you know, they're very, I hate to keep using the word organic, but. You know, just you know the the uh, you know seeing Duke in 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 really just a down to earth way. Um, you know the conversations and what I mean, it's just it's really it's really brilliant. Of course, that was a latter part of you know Duke's uh, life. I believe he passed away in '71. But um, yeah, it's just the, you know the great and and of course he told me so many Duke stories and, <laughs> and you know what a what a consummate you know professional and gentleman he was and and uh, and obviously you know <laughs> you know how he quit his piano lessons when he was a kid you know it's like stuff he just you know um, well, wasn't his teacher Mrs. Clink Scales I mean come on you can't <laughs> you gotta quit your lessons right. if it's Clink Scales <laughs> get me one. out of here jeez oh, right. yeah that's right that's right he was, he was a, and you say he was a dishwasher and you. And he heard uh, heard this piano player, this boogie boogie piano player playing in the club, and I kind of reignited his his love for it. that and meeting. He wanted to meet girls, so yep. yes, <laughs> apparently, yeah. That his his biography is now probably in the Me Too era. A little bit needs to be oh. <laughs> blacked out, but yeah, what a guy, yeah. Those uh those short films I was talking about, uh, I think it's uh I think it's black and tan. It might be black and tan, it might be bundle of blues. But you know, uh, there's this basically a scene in it where he's like walking out of a club with three women, and 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 the look on his face is like, and I'm not acting. He's <laughs> <It's like, Right. laughs> <laughs> a smooth cat. There's no question. Yeah, about. different era, different era. Yeah. Certainly, <clears throat> certainly. I uh, I spent a year. Uh, I mentioned this before on the podcast. I've spent a I spent a year in Boston, and I was uh, teaching all over the city. Um, and what I used to have to. So I lived in I, I lived in uh, Dorchester. I lived right off the Red Line, uh, down by what uh, Ardmore, whatever. I forget the name. It's all it's, uh, begins with an A. I forget. It's the second to last stop on the Red Line, and um, all my all my. All the places I taught were on the red lines. I taught at um, UMB and I taught at Emerson and I taught at the Boston Conservatory for the Arts. And I had to get off at the um, I got off uh, on the red line. I had to walk a ways, but I'd always stop in the Starbucks and it became a regular place for me because a regular stop before my uh, evening classes at the Boston Conservatory because it was right across the street from Berkeley College. And I used to sit there drinking coffee thinking, who's 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 going to be famous in 10 years out of these kids that I'm seeing, you know, cause you know, the young people would come in, you know, and, and I would just kind of, you know, I'd be sitting there reading, thinking these kids, these young people are, are, you know, the jazz stars, the classical stars, the whatevers of tomorrow. 
Um, so anyway, I was going to ask, you know, who were your mentors at you know, who was kind of influential on you when you were at Berkeley? Uh, George Garzon, George Garzon, George Garzon. He's kind of my cat. You know, he's, I still think he's the greatest living tenor player, in my opinion. Because mm. he says, I mean, his breadth. He can play a ballad like no one. He could then break out of Blake, you know, Coltrane, and then, you know, do his Joe Henderson. I mean, he's just all over. The, he's just, but it's all him. He's not, it's not derivative. So, yeah, I mean, George, and again, he kind of comes from that school where, you know, he's, 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 uh, he's a moving target. You know, I mean, I studied with Billy Pierce as well. It was great, 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 you know, player. And of course, you know, the guru at that time, Joe Viola, who taught, who taught Bill and who taught Garzon. And, and wow. that. Okay. <laughs> yeah, and he was, uh, he was, he was the cat. But yeah, I mean, really Garzon, and I still have stuff I work on, you know, that was his, that's his. And because his concept is pretty incredible, you know, his, his, his outlook and in, in, in the way he approaches, you know, repertoire and songs and whatnot, and his technique and sound and and everything is just—he's incredible. You know, he's just—he's another constant, you know, source of inspiration. So, you know, and occasionally I get to see him and, and hang and all that. So, um, yeah. So Garzon was really was really my guy, you know. And he's done some like textbooks or. He's you got a theory out there. I mean, I know I heard the name both as a performer, but also kind of as a theorist of somebody that kind of had an approach to improvisation that was kind of distinct to him or codified by him That's right. to some degree. I, mm-hmm. It's it's above my head. I mean, you know, I don't understand it, but I've never heard right. of you know, right. the, har- the harmonic stuff is kind of like, okay, well, this is way above, you know, it's like tri- where what, I'm able to think. But, yeah. Uh, what, what is it called? The, the triadic? I don't know, Lydian concept. I don't know, maybe I'm combining a couple of different things, you know, but. Throw a little George Russell in there and everything. Yeah, yeah, right. There you go. You know your stuff. You know your stuff. Sure. But again, he's just, you know, he's just one of those players. It's just, again, constantly pushing it, pushing it, pushing it. And, th- and those are the kind of players that I like. I mean, there's a lot of great players, real inside players, you know, um, that are wonderful. Um, but that's not where, you know, where I'm coming from. I'd rather hear. Um, you know, people trying to push harmonically and there's so much with harmony you can do, um, so much with rhythm, uh, that we can do even beyond what is even outside of the jazz, you know, box, so to speak. I mean, you know, you get into, you know, polyrhythms and all this sort of thing. I mean, a lot of that stuff, I mean, there's, 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 you know, Joe Henderson used to do a lot of that, ripping fives and things like that. And, you know, so there's a lot, you know, Slot, you can go in, in many different directions, but uh, George has always been one of those people. It's just constantly. Next time I hear him, you know, next month, for example, he'll be doing something else I hadn't even heard before. So, which is pretty inspiring. Right, doesn't, yeah, doesn't let it rest. Keeps keeps pushing. Absolutely, I mean, much like Coltrane, right? You know, he used to, he used to practice so much his mouth would bleed. <laughs> Sometimes my ears do too, so it worked out. You know? He got his revenge. 
Right. Yeah, some of that later stuff I'm not ready for early in the morning, but it's it's amazing. Yeah, he never and he had a really I think someone's wondered with Rashawn, you know, Coltrane. I think people got because he was so warm and committed and direct, right? I mean, this was a guy that and just played to your heart. And then Rashawn, sometimes you don't know if he's like bullshitting you. You know, some of it's pretty sarcastic, some of it's very direct, but some of it's like, does he like Burt Bacharach or is he just like taking the piss out of him? It's kind of hard, you know. <laughs> He's Why? a tricky dude to kind Why? of get emotionally. They yeah. talk about all that, you know, his his humor and his snarkiness and his, you know, all that stuff. Yeah, you, know, you got to. Yeah, no, it's I've got it. I've got to write. It's on our to to watch list for sure. I mean, yeah. that because if anybody needs a movie, it's it's for Sean. I mean, that's yeah, that's oh. great. And it's and yeah. it, it's really I think it's really well done. Um, there's a lot of footage of him and just you know incredible and you know in fact after seeing that is when I. I took it upon myself to uh, to uh, work out his arrangement of the inflated tear. You know, which I did you know, a couple months back. I think I sent you guys a link to it. So um, it's on YouTube and whatnot. And um, okay. just because, you know, it's, it's such a beautiful piece of music. And, and why not? And why not? You know, I think I drove my wife crazy when I was learning. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but uh, I finally got it. Finally got it. So um, it's just, yeah, beauty. It's just beauty. Absolute beauty in, 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 in the most physically demanding way. <laughs> right beauty but work <laughs> yeah no, he's, he's an amazing guy what else you got mike i was just gonna ask now that where where are you headed next what are your what are your next projects what are what are you excited about that's coming up for you well you know obviously with the the release of solace um i created my own record label so um it was and again it was, it was kind of cool you know seeing you know you're seeing impulse and blue note and then muscle music so yeah <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, all right, you know, so, but now I have to kind of follow it up by keeping, you know, putting out um, projects, too. So I also have a, um, you know, a, a New Orleans-style brass band that actually works quite a bit up here. And uh, if I could, just last week I was playing uh, with the Dirty Dozen. You familiar with them? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, I did a couple nights with them at the Blue Note here. And and I did a recording, one of those quarantine sessions, oh, probably six or eight months ago, whatever it is now. And I had you know a couple of guys from the Dirty Dozen uh, as a part of it. So you know it was great, it was wonderful. You can actually um, the Demolition Brass Band is the name of the band, and you can go uh, <laughs> you know find it on uh, on YouTube certainly. But then people are like, look, this came out so great, you got to release this, you got to put it out. We you know that particular recording we recovered. Um, Earth, Wind, and Fire's Getaway. Nice. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, kind of gave it a New Orleans tinge, and Brooke cracked it open, and everybody got to blow on it. And, and I'm very happy with the way it came out. And, and some of the singer, you know, the lead singer, one of the lead singers uh, is the former lead singer of Tower of Power. And the other, uh, the black fella, he, uh, 
you know, he's worked with Michael Jackson, and, and it's just a whole lot of wonderful. Uh, the, the guitar player you might know, William Spaceman Patterson. I don't know if you're familiar with him. Uh, he worked with you know Sun Ra and Miles Davis, and so he's on there as well. And um, so we're gonna, you know, so as far as my own label, um, that's gonna be the next release um, after the holidays, probably in February. We're looking at so um, be on the lookout for that as well. So different yeah. kind of project but you know it's uh you know you know it's it's, it's you know real fun stuff and I've, I've absolutely fallen in love in new orleans so uh have you guys been down there before yeah i have never been i've been near but not oh, wow. in and have you been pat i went on my honeymoon and i won't say how long ago that was but it's been a couple decades and then you know they got hit so bad that we haven't been back. I mean, I, I'd like to go back. I, I just they've they've had some troubles. They've had some struggles, and mm-hmm. yeah, we just haven't gotten down there again. But it's it's a beautiful city, and I mean, I remember the food, the music, <laughs> absolutely, both excellent. Yeah, absolutely. That's been thirty years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, definitely. Yeah, once things you know obviously uh, kind of bounce back a little bit, um, yeah, go. It's it's really, you know, I'm, obviously I'm preaching to the choir here. It's by far the hippest place in America. There's nothing even close. And it's also, mm. you know, what I really love about it is, um, you know, aside from you know the music and 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 the food is the specifically the music is is the tradition. How you literally feel the tradition everywhere. You see kids, you know, eight year old kids with trombones. You know, it's just it's literally, you know. Um, seeping up through the sidewalks and it's it is really inspiring it's very very inspiring and and it's again that's another source of inspiration just going back there all the time because it's real players playing playing their butts off and just trying to push it push it push it and, and reach for the infinite so to speak um and that's in that energy is, is uh something i've really um become attached to and so I uh, obviously created a, a band up here, and, and we're working constantly. Yeah, this is a demand. You know, we've seen, like, uh, I'm in the Indianapolis area, and there's a demand for, like, we've seen versions where, like, Indian music gets combined with almost a, a kind of New Orleans sound. Mm-hmm. And the New Orleans sound, just in music that's got a little bit more of a party aspect, a little bit more of a you know rhythmic thrust, but mm-hmm. still includes jazz elements and kind of mixes those together. And that'll reach people in a way that you know t- you know 20 minutes of my favorite things might not. You know, and it, right, right. it really it works great in a room. You know, it, there's oh, it oh. energizes a place. Yeah, and those those been some great shows I've been to in Sweden too. You know, there's some groups that were when I was out there that were kind of experimenting with that blend, and it it really it really works well when it's done well. Yeah, oh, absolutely. And again, you have to remember that's you know that's the root of all this music, all of it. Everything from, you know, whatever style of music we listen to, you know, from rock to blues, whatever, it all started, you know, I mean, well, maybe Mississippi blues, you know, might 
that be a different, you know, uh, branch or, of the tree. But really, you know, uh, as far as popular music and and whatnot, and you know, before you know the uh, music spread around the country and, and you know became more rooted in in um, you know each you know Chicago's blues and Chicago jazz was different than New York and L.A. etc. Cetera, et cetera. But really, the foundation of it is it was New Orleans, and you still see that today. You know, remember the, you know the, the tuba was the first bass, for example, right? Yeah, you're preaching the choir here. Mike is a he's a tuba fan. Ah, there you go. He's all about it. Yeah, Kirk Joseph is my boy. You know, from the dozen, and and again, he and you know, we've talked a lot about you know, in long conversations, and he he was you know back in the day he was he was transcribing you know Ron Carter licks and in Jocko and, and oh, yeah, no, wow, absolutely. That's not easy on a bass, much less do a. Oh my God! But you, but when you when you listen to, it, in fact, you know, on the gig, you know, his amp is right there because now he's he's playing through an amp too, and he's got all this. It's really kind of cool. He's got all these effects and <laughs> really tuba pedals. It's, it's yeah. amazing. It's amazing what he's doing now. <laughs> um, but his articulation and when he's you know, I mean, his, his attack and his it's just phenomenal. Phenomenal. Now, there's a guy that's his, his lungs are probably in pretty decent shape. I'm oh, my guess. God. Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> you know. Hold his breath for five minutes underwater, probably. Um, wow. His endurance, and then there's New Orleans endurance, which is a whole yeah. other thing. So a whole Do it while walking. Yeah. Well, any final thoughts, questions, Mike? Did you have? No, no. This has been great. Really enjoyed. Really enjoyed the album. Um, was a lot of fun to. Uh, I love listening to, to. To. I don't really need much of an excuse to listen to uh, Kirk, and uh, this was a great excuse to do that. But of course, I mean, what you're doing isn't. You know, it's more than that. You know, obviously he's an influence, but it's. You know, you you have your own thing, which is really cool. And uh, it was a pleasure kind of listening to the inspiration alongside, you know, where you've taken it. And uh, it's a good album. It's a lot of fun. You know, I highly recommend the album, you know, to folks, uh, obviously to anyone who's into Kirk. But even if you're not into Kirk, if you're just into I I just liked it. I thought it was a lot of fun. Um, It was a really good album and and a real pleasure to uh, to listen to. So really glad that you could make it on the show and that we could talk to you. Oh, it's a ple- it's truly a pleasure, you know. You guys are, you know, I could just your your knowledge is uh, is inspiring and and uh, and it's really it's really cool to talk to people that really know their history and and we can really just kind of you know uh, thanks you know go back and forth like this. It's, it's a true joy, really. And uh, just so you know, I mean, we're planning to as we often do, we'll put some clips from the album so people can hear it. You know, I'm constantly humbled by the fact that really a lot of our listenership is is not based in the states but but elsewhere and mm-hmm. you know we get emails from brazil and from sweden and things like wow i mean i guess it's no further on the internet than it is here but somehow it seems like you bothered to listen to this from you know the states all the way over there so sure you know you've, it sounds like you got a fan base out there and there's a lot of people you know who are deeply into and committed to jazz outside of the states and it sounds like you found an audience there which is great yeah i thought the album i mean i think that the multi-tracking is great, or not multi-tracking, I'm sorry, the multi-horns, it's all at the same time. But really, it's just really strong compositions, they're memorable, it's well-programmed, and I'll tell you, the band just sounds, I mean, you can hear an album where people sound like they're energized, and they're just, they're in a moment, and they're just playing a little bit above their heads, or I, mm-hmm. that may be the wrong phrase, but just, they're having a good day, and yeah. this album has that feel to it. 
Yeah. Uh, you know, a lot of albums by just fantastic players. You could tell, well, this was a good solid day, but it wasn't, you know, the studio didn't happen to capture them at their best or this particular album doesn't have that spark. But yeah, th- this album really, it kicks, man. Uh, you got a great band there and from the, from the go, it's, it's, you know, it's driving, it goes. And again, the structures, the songs are just good because one of the things we struggle with as listeners is the album full of originals because so often they don't sure. stick. You know, it's like, well, yeah, they don't remember that tune. You know, it's kind of, that's a, that's a trick to do. Um, so yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you for all that. In fact, we're finally, finally, I should uh, also plug, uh, we're having our record release party on uh, January 23rd here in New York. So if you guys happen to be... Uh, <laughs> I, I wish. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> so it's a little, a little bit delayed, but it's going to be kicking nonetheless. So Yeah, and I hope, you know, I... I it's, it's weird. I mean, I'm in a place that denies that coronavirus even exists, right? Indiana is like, it um, never happened. So... But I, and it's not, it's not like it's terrible, but I'm, I'm hoping, I feel like things are normalizing a bit that gigs are coming back. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I, you know, it's not the way it was a year ago when it just seemed like everything was just on pause. Yeah. Um, yeah. Is, is New York doing okay? Is it, are I you mean, able been, to get around and gig? And, me personally, I mean, I'm, I've been working constantly. I mean, I just went on a run of, I don't know, 28, 29 days in a row. So awesome. Yeah to, yeah. Say, yeah, to say things are back, yeah. I mean, I literally have to, in fact, you know, you know, tomorrow we're having a little pre-Thanksgiving thing. And, of course, you know, tonight and, and tomorrow and Sunday, people calling me for gigs. And I'm like, no, 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 I'm trying to beat them off. So uh, for, <laughs> so literally, so, so my struggle now is, and it's a good one, I'm not complaining, is to uh, just really to to say no once in a while, you know? Yeah. Just, yeah, you got to do well, that. Well, I'm going to yeah. stay. Look, I'm staying home, and uh, you know, and you know, a lot of these gigs are wonderful. And you know, like you know, a couple months ago, uh, two, three months ago, you know, playing with Roy Ayers one weekend, Gloria Gaynor, you know, two days later. So you know, working with all these icons in music and uh, Ben Vereen, we did we back. Oh yeah, okay. Ben Vereen one night. He's an amazing performer. So, you know, all this stuff is coming in. It's coming in. So it's hard to say no. So uh, here in New York, I mean, yeah, most people are. I would say four out of five people I know are, are vaccinated. So um, there's a certain comfort level that comes with that. Yeah. So. Yeah, well, we're great here because we've always got plenty of extra doses. I've got my third. So I can fight anybody for them. So what the hell? You can give me a fourth. It doesn't matter. They're lying on the shelves. Absolutely. Well, uh, it's been a great pleasure to talk to you. We appreciate you following up. And this worked out great and uh you know thanks for coming on the show and uh, we're both strongly recommending the album and i mean again i the reason we talked to you is because we liked you know not we don't feel obligated to because you're a guest it's we made you a guest because we like the record so oh. it was a real pleasure to talk to you and we we got some things to do now i gotta go see this this roland kirk movie oh, <laughs> i didn't know it existed yeah man I'm, on prime and i'm telling you you're gonna watch it again and again and again i'm telling you oh, awesome. you know what do me a favor email me when you see it I would love, okay. I would love, love, love to hear your uh, your uh, opinion of it. I think I personally think you're gonna absolutely love it, and you're gonna watch it again and again and be addicted to it like I am. So, hey, honey, no procedurals tonight. We're not watching a detective show. We're watching something about a blind guy that plays three saxes at once. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's gonna get me in real trouble at home, but I, I'm gonna do it. Okay. Oh, well, go if for you- it. If you ever get the chance, then, Dave, you should watch. Uh, there is a Sun Ra film called Space is the Place. And wow. uh, 
Yeah. It is a trip and a half. It's 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 wow. exactly as weird as you would imagine it to be, and, oh, and it's 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 wow. very cool. I'm going to tell you one quick, real quick story with, you know, my, my friend William, Spaceman, Patterson, all this. Uh, so he finally gets a call to play with Sun Ra, right? And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a nice venue in New York and this and that. And, and he's, you know, he's excited. He's got his guitar ready to go. And uh, Sonny, as he was called, I uh, said, look, you know, um, don't play until I ask you to play. Okay, I'm going to, I'm going to look over at you. I'm going to give you an odd. And, uh, and then, then from that point, you can play. So, so he's like, oh, wow, I'm playing Sun Ra's. It's a dream, unbelievable. So, um, first set goes by. <laughs> oh, <laughs> the, whole first, the whole first set, he's standing there with his guitar. Nothing, right? This is back in the 70s and early 80s. So, uh, it was a three-set you know, gig. Uh, set two, whole set goes by. <laughs> Finally, they start the third set. I'm like, okay, he's just testing me. Okay, cool. So the whole you know set goes by. They play the last note. Um, he's looking at him. Doesn't play one note. Doesn't play one <laughs> note. Right. At the end of the night, he gives him seven, you know, five, seven hundred bucks in cash, which back in uh. 1978 or 1980, it's, that's some good money, right? Yeah. And, and he's like, Sonny, but I, I don't get it. You know, you, you, you call me for the gig and, 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 you know, I, I don't get to play one note. I mean, you know, come on. I had friends here. And, you know, it's like, <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, I told everybody, my, my family's probably, I don't know if his family was there, but everybody. And then, uh, Sonny looks at him and he says, exactly. And then, of course, huh? the whole thing was, cause, you know, uh, you know, about Sun Ra's is the whole family, and uh, vibe of it and seeing if you could fit in. So the whole thing was a parable to see whether he could fit into the puzzle before he actually got really got the gig. So, wow. Yeah. So the next gig, of course, he was playing his ass off. But uh, it was all about, you know, controlling it, seeing if you could, you know, if you knew it's like a chess match. So it's had to leave you. (laughs) So it's kind of. Yeah, an electric guitarist that can keep it in his pants for three sets, that's that's a find. You know, that's discipline, because most of the time that doesn't happen. So. That is the truth. Yeah. <laughs> You've picked him out. You, you control yourself. All right, dude, you got the gig. Wow, that's amazing. I love oh. that I love that story. But yes, that's a great one. Thank you. Thank you so much. It was, it was a pleasure on my end as well. And. And uh, continued success. I love what you guys are doing. It's a very, very important service you guys are uh, are doing here. Hey, thank you. Well, we well, do it for the, we do it for the money. So that's right. <laughs> You're still waiting on it, but one of these days it's going to come, no doubt. The big bucks. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> Maybe it won't last, but what do we care? My baby. 
what you've been listening to? Well, uh, mainly stuff you provided. Ah, uh, so you like listen to a you like little bit of flows? hot. I'm sorry, what's that? You like feel flows? Well, yeah, the disc you've got me so far. Was it the first disc of it? Yeah. Basically, this is a Beach Boys reissue. They did a, a one kind of based around Wild Honey called like 1969, and this is combining Surfs Up with Sunflower. And I, I got a kind of fancy version of Sunflower. I have not gotten one of Surfs Up. And the problem with so many Beach Boys albums is at least one track is just stupid. <laughs> you know, there's, I mean, there's one like Beach Boys Today is like a great album, and then there's just one track where they're just like talking. I mean, you know, because Wilson was pretty much the sole songwriter, the producer, everything else. So he just could and they were making like three or four albums a year. So he couldn't come up with more than like 25 minutes of stuff. And so how do you fill out enough to get to your 30, 35 minute record? And like student demonstration time by Mike Love, you know, on Surf's uh-huh. Up, it's like this. That's a whole lot of stupid. You know, <laughs> do you want to spend 35 bucks for a really nice vinyl version of like 20, 25 minutes of good music? So this is a lot of tracks mostly i've heard versions of before not all of them um yeah. there's one that is like dennis wilson that clearly was co-written by the wood which is what he called his penis you know me and the wood <laughs> which i hadn't heard before it's kind of a hard rocking come sleep with me mama right you know song mm-hmm. yeah and a couple of country and western uh takes that i haven't heard before so yeah i've been enjoying it you know it, it's I got so deep into them for a while that sometimes it has to be years between listening to them again because I was absolutely immersed. But it's probably been long enough that I'm ready to go back into that weird place. I mean, some of it is just strange. But, um, you know, and and I think Sunflower is – Sunflower, I don't think there's a single song that – I mean, some people think add some music to your day is probably they can't stand it. That's one where it talks about you can listen to music in your dentist chair and you can listen to Mm -hmm. it. It gets a little – ominous is like were you guys trying to be creepy with that or probably not is it safe or is it not safe but yeah it, it's a really good record and you know surf stop has got some of my all-time favorite beach boys music on. i've not heard that disc yet uh but yeah so i've enjoyed that and then uh you sent me in person in in in, in the flesh hot cakes and outtakes by little feet <laughs> you're finally into that well i I've got to sit down. You know, I, I was listening to the disc of the stuff after he was gone, and I'm like, right. okay, I made it. There's a couple good songs here, and now I'm running out of. And I, so went back today and was listening to the very first record, Little Feet and Sailing Shoes. And I just, one, I'm realizing that so many of the songs on these albums are just about himself. Yeah. You know, there's all these references to fat, fat man in the bathtub, and, you know, and it, he was a, he, he had weight problems. And, and the first one is this kind of weird hippie slide guitar thing that, that they never quite sounded like again. But I've always thought in some ways I like maybe that the best of all. And Sail and Choose is the second record. And that to me is one of their strongest. And then even with Dixie Chicken, which has some great numbers, you know, there are patches where it's just the inspiration is dimming a bit and it's getting a little bit slicker. And there is a sense that he's got a kind of a tenderness, a thoughtfulness and a true oddity. And the first couple of records that just slowly seeps out as he indulges in more and more chemicals and there's a power struggle on the band. And then, yeah, when he's gone or even the second half of the career when he's there, but he's less present and less focused. It's good. There's some stuff I like, but I don't. It's a long way of saying that I have mixed feelings about Little Feet and 
a lot of the hot takes and outcakes probably I'm not going to play that often because yeah we should I, I'm one of those yeah Lowell George guys I'm like yeah, we yeah should, he we was should. kind of the thing. I was going to say, you were using the pronoun, and unless someone knew Little Feet well, they wouldn't know that he is Lowell George, who is sort of yes, the heart, right. heart and soul of the band. And, uh, I'm, and part I'm, of that book, yeah, in Hot Takes and Outtakes, is trying to write a new narrative where yeah. it's okay that the band came back and went on without him, and God, they just want some gigs and give them a break. You know? right, right. And I, I mean, I get it. I, I don't dislike these people or something, but they're just, they tend to be kind of just kind of horny. You know, once he's gone, he's just the heart and soul of the band. I mean, you know, I mean, they're they're a decent band without him, but they're a great band with him. And especially on those, uh, you know, first couple of albums. And there's there's a couple of just all time classic songs that he penned that are fucking lights out. I think Willen is one of the great, great sort of rock ballad songs of all time. You know, I, I, I adore that song. I think it's fucking genius. He liked it enough to put it on the first two albums. So, you know, exactly. I, just, I mean, you know, I, I just I, do it once, do it twice. It's got some chord changes and the bridge in that just kills me every time I hear it. The piano. I mean, it's just a great fucking song. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I I like the Lowell George stuff way better than the non Lowell George stuff. Yeah. And um, yeah, I just thought you might be interested. There's some interesting um, demos. Yeah, and, I've got to uh, listen to that disc. I haven't yeah. yet played it. And of course, he had a cute daughter who was in uh, the. Bird and the Bee and did her own stuff and, and nothing whatsoever like yeah. her. Yeah. 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 She, she does not sing at all like her father. Oop. And I'd say his singing of it, you know, sometimes the kind of moving around the, 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 the stuff he does with his voice doesn't quite come off, but man, the songwriting and the band as a unit, I don't, I, those first few albums are really, you know, and I grew up on those things, you know, yeah. Just, yeah. ever since I was a wee little lad. So what what have you been listening to? So as always, I, I keep digging into recent sort of pop and hip hop and, you know, never have gone into this stuff deeply enough to have a verdict by the time the podcast comes around because it's just sort of entered into the rotation. Um, but I'll name check some things for folks out there. Um, Xenia Rubinos is sort of a neo soul pop art pop songstress. Been listening to Black Terry Cat from 2016. Like it pretty good. There's a, a rap album by Freddie Gibbs, uh, which is uh, basically, you know, co-produced by The Alchemist. Um, and unlike a lot of rap albums, this one is not 80 minutes with tricked out with tons of skits. It's a tight 10-song, 35-minute affair, and uh, it's all the better for it. It's got some memorable, memorable beats, and it's, it's. Uh, I'm looking forward to sort of letting that one marinate. I think that's that's uh, pretty good stuff. Let's see, what else? There was one other um, hip-hop album that came across the desk recently. was, uh, da, 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 oh, I'm going to remember it. Mm, can't find it. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, there were two others. 
neither of which really sort of stuck with me. R.A.P. music, so it's not called rap. It's a, it's an acronym uh, by Killer Mike from 2012. was interesting, um, but probably not going to stick with me. Same with uh, Mellow Hypes, Black and White from 2011. Uh, I'll listen to them some more, but they're not. They don't affect me. I'm not as uh, connected to them as I am to this to this other disc that I just mentioned that I like quite a bit. So um, there's that. And then uh, more up your alley. I mean, so, yeah, the Beach Boys thing. Um, I still haven't listened to the second disc of that. I will soon. Just uh, got my first copy of Clash's Combat Rock. You probably were in on, maybe you were in on them when when we were young. I wasn't. I mean, I knew everyone had the t-shirts and stuff, but I just wasn't listening to this music when I was young. Hmm. Which has um, a couple of really famous songs on it, right? Rock the Casbah, Should I Stay or Should I Go? And uh, they sound a little different in context. And... You know, I got it based on the the Pitchfork review, which basically says at this point, Mick Jones and Joe Strummer are trying to kill each other. Um, <laughs> and and the album is, you know, it's it's sort of their they didn't put it this way, but I'm I'm going to put it this way. It's sort of their um, it's it's their white album. It's like, you know, uh, or sorry, it's their um, uh, Abbey Road. You know, it's they didn't trade sides. It's just some songs. It's like Mick and some songs. It's Joe and they don't really like each other anymore at this point. Um, and uh, it's. It's dead fucking fascinating. Um, and it's, you know, I didn't listen to this stuff when it came out, you know, back in the day. Um, I don't know what I was listening to in 19, well, I do know what I was listening to in 1982, but it wasn't The Clash. Did you listen to this stuff back then or no? I think it was the stuff I was not, no, certainly not in high school. No. I mean, it was the stuff that I was told when I went to college you should have been listening to. Right. Uh, instead right. of 70s Prague, because, you know, we were behind the times in central Illinois by probably a decade. So, I mean, I eventually did. I mean, mainly London Calling. And I, I got to say, a group is absolutely pivotal for a certain generation that I somehow just missed or just didn't participate in. Right. I admire them. There's some songs I really like, but I'm not the kind of guy that, that puts London Calling in that kind of pantheon that some people do. I just, you know, just practically speaking, I don't listen to it that often. And that I tend to think, I mean, combat rock, I always, I've got it. I mean, I, I should listen to it through. I mean, mainly it's just because those singles, I mean, they were inescapable. Right. I like both of them. They're a lot of fun. They're just fun songs. Um, but I don't know that record well. And then, and then the original one was like, it may have been a compilation that was released in the States, but there has, you know, like I fought the law and the law one. I mean, right. I remember listening to that and, in college, I mean, there's just some incredible singles on that. So, yeah, I knew them from um, London Calling and, of course, Sandinista. Um, and for whatever reason, I just never had this. And I, I read the Pitchfork review, and I'm like, all right, I should fucking listen to the whole album. And you know, it's dead fascinating. Um, you know, I don't know what I think yet, but man, they had 
they were, you know, four guys with a lot of talent and a lot of a, a lot of agita, both toward themselves, toward their audience, toward commercial success. Like they just they were angry young men. Um, right. Who well, were, I mean, who were selling out arenas, of, you know. <laughs> so. Right. I mean, the, the, the you can see punk just morphing in their career so yeah. rapidly from, yeah. you know, that the super high intensity coiled stuff on the first recordings to by the time to London calling. I mean, they're, they're stretching at all sprawling around in all these different genres and a couple of things that are MOR is too strong, but you know, lost in the supermarket is in some ways a near ballad. It's you know, almost that, disco, that, <laughs> you know, that, that would not be out of the place on a lot of more, let's say less punk artists. So yeah, it, it, yeah it, I mean, they show, if you've got a lot of musical talent, a lot of things to say is like, you just can't stay punk. Now, I mean, not as brilliantly as the damn show with Phantasmagoria. <laughs> There's so right. many other things you right. can do. Ah, oh, God bless the damn. But yeah, as, you know, some, the Sex Pistols is the preeminent, just, Literally, they could barely play their instruments, super intense. And, you know, I mean, some people out of that went on to more interesting careers after that. But that kind of DIY, just anything, just hate yeses, guts and, and play. And then very rapidly, people that did have some musical talents like, well, we can't just keep playing these same two chords over and over again. And then it, it's interesting to see what happens. Right. You know, yeah, they, they yeah. can't. They start spreading out. So, oh, and I did listen to something that had some rapping on it. Ski whiffs. Put your hands together with a picture of a cute kitty on it. It's I don't know. There's some wrapping. It's very light. It's it's out of England, and I it's it's hard to describe what it is. It, it's very some sort of almost loungy instrumentals along with some wrapping and some sampling and things. But with such songs as Too Busy Twerkin and Flyer Than Lotus, it's it's not very serious, and that's probably the kind of rap Patrick likes best. You know, it's, it's kind of a it goes down easy for. A neophyte like me. I forgot to mention, I also uh, got a copy of 1967's deathless classic, Chelsea Girl, um, by oh, Nico. Oh, is that by Nico? Yeah, <laughs> that, that, another up, uh, upbeat. <laughs> Never has a Shantuz sung less out of key than, <laughs> than Nico. She, she has two notes. This is, this is my impression of Nico. I like music. I mean, she literally has two notes. Neither one of them is correct, but she sings yeah, them. Never. She sings How them. How does she keep picking more. the wrong one for the chord? How does I she know. have that ability? It's amazing. <laughs> oh, she's great. I, I once I just for some reason at work. This is a couple of years back. I was you, I was like playing the Marble Index and something else, and thinking these are great. And I'm never going to play them again. I, 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 I'll have to go back. But yeah, she's apparently there's a hot new movie out about the Velvets, and yeah. they've never loomed that large for me. But I'm kind of curious to see the film. I, you know, that may be the way to absorb them the best in some ways. Yeah, she has a song called "Wrap Your Troubles in Dreams," which is not the song you know. "Wrap Your Troubles in Dreams," which right. sounds like. Uh, a nightmare and 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 she's wrapping her troubles in the nightmare uh that's what it sounds like i don't know put your feet in the concrete but, now put your, wrap your feet <laughs> she literally sings the word in wrap your troubles and dream you know it's like oh man dude this wow i don't know why i got it i just maybe I, it's a kind of completist and self-torture i felt like it was necessary 
existentialism in musical form. Yeah, if you believe there was God before, uh, you'll be over uh, it now. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's just, oh, uh, uh, it's, it's really bad. It's awful. And this concludes Jazz Bastard Podcast 230. Many thanks to our special guest, Dave Mullen. His album Solace is out now. And his brass band project's on the way, so look out for that. Amazon does indeed offer the three-colored dream, or three-sided dream, rather, by Rollin Kirk for streaming. It's two bucks to rent, four bucks to own. I did watch it and enjoyed it quite a bit, so you may want to take a look at that if you're at all interested in Rossan Roland Kirk. As always, you can download the podcast at www.jazzbastard.com. You can get it from Stitcher, from Mixcloud, from Apple Podcasts, where it'd be great if you left us a rating. We're always trying to grow our audience and let other people know about the joys of listening to us pontificate about jazz or stream it at All About Jazz. You can drop me a line at All About Jazz. You can email me at pat at jazzbastard.com or you can look us up on Facebook. Tune in next time as we do our inevitable holiday music special. We're going to be looking at work by Johnny Costa, the musical director for Mr. Rogers, Stephen Fefke and Benny Benek III, Nora Jones, and a whole host of Capitol recording artists from the 40s and 50s. Till next time, take care.